Every single day, you have an allotment of time. You have 1,440 minutes every 24 hours. God puts that in your time bank account and you get to use it any way you want. And when it's gone, it's gone. And the only thing you have left is what you exchange for it. Welcome to Mana Bible Lessons. In this podcast, we take an in-depth expository look at the Bible. You're listening to the audio-only version. If you would like to see the video, visit manapodcast.com forward slash watch. And now, here's Brad Hannock. If you would be so kind, fellow students, to open to Ephesians 5, we're going to be blessed to continue. Isn't the Word of God unbelievably amazing, wonderful? Uh, if you weren't in the service this morning, that was remarkable. The Holy Spirit was present with power and uh, certainly spoke to my heart, slapped me upside one the head and down the other, and I, which I desperately needed. That's why I come every week. Uh, so we're going to be opening Ephesians 5 and um, beginning at verse uh, 15, just five verses today. Back in the day, way back in the day when I was younger, uh, much younger, I used to own a powerboat. And I would water ski on the lakes in Northern California. And I learned very quickly that a boat requires power and a boat requires steering in order to navigate. We used to ski on some pretty big lakes. And if you have power without the ability to steer, you get yourself in really deep trouble. And if you have steering without power, that's pretty useless too. A map is helpful. We've been skiing on Don Pedro. If you ever skied Don Pedro Lake up there behind the dam, you can get lost in all the various uh, uh, inlets and outlets, etc. So the first half of Ephesians 5 highlights the reality that Christians are children of God. We belong to the family of God. As God's children, the Apostle Paul says, you are to live lives of love. You're to live lives of purity and lives of truth. The world in which we live is a dark place. Do you want me to tone it down, Marty? I'll tone it down. And we are called to be children of light. We are to please the Lord and not to practice the desires and deeds of the flesh. So today's lesson, we're going to look at five verses that tell us how to travel in this dark and dangerous world. And we're gonna find out that it requires power and it requires direction or steering and it requires a good map and a navigation. And we've been given all of those. Our calling is to live in light of that, to live in light of that. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter five, verse 15 of, of Ephesians five. Therefore, in light of the fact that you are children of God and have been called to walk as such, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Here's the principle. Living wisely requires diligence. We must walk carefully so we don't stumble over temptation and fall into sin. Living wisely requires diligence. We must walk carefully so we don't stumble over temptation and fall into sin. Now, this is an imperative, it's a command. Be careful is not a suggestion. God doesn't make suggestions, have you noticed? He, he speaks with authority whenever he speaks and he says, be careful, that's a command. And that Greek word is the word circumspect, circumspect, which means to look around, the circumference of the, 
of, of, a, of a sphere is all around. So circumspect means to look around. It has the idea of getting a 360 degree view or orientation of the world you're in before taking action. So it means pay attention. In the Greek, it means precision. It means live with precision, live with accuracy, live with exactness. That word, uh, be careful, circumspect, is also an accounting term, which Brother Shavinsky would understand, which means if you're balancing the books in an organization or you're balancing your own checkbook, it should be balanced to the penny, which you all do. Of course you do, right? Because you're precise people. Of course you're precise people. So it's the opposite of living carelessly. It's the opposite of living casually. It says, live carefully, be circumspect, look around. Yogi Berra once said, you can observe a lot by watching. <laughs> Paul says, pay close attention to the path you're taking. Pay close attention to the direction your feet are going. You know, if you're hiking in the wilderness and you don't look around carefully, regularly, to lock in your landmarks, it's pretty easy to get lost. If you're walking on a tightrope, you've seen the Wallendas do their tightrope act. Believe me, when you're 60 feet off the ground and there's no net, you are very careful where you place your feet. Otherwise, you might fall. If you're walking through a field of landmines, your feet have to be very precise or you could set off a landmine and get killed. So those are some word pictures about what Paul says. You walk carefully through this life because, among other things, we have an enemy named Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Of course, he's got your name on his list. That someone is, is you can put your name in that blank. So we know that our adversary, the enemy, Satan, sets traps called temptations. He plants landmines of temptation, and he does it because our old nature is really attracted to it. James 1.14 says, each one, each one of us, by name, is tempted when they are carried away and enticed by their own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin's accomplished, it brings forth death. So this word carried away or drawn away has the idea of a hunter who sets a trap to lure prey from its safe hiding place. You know, you lure prey from a safe hiding place, then you can trap it, capture it, and kill it. Enticed, when James used the word enticed, it, 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 has, the, it has the word picture of catching by bait. How many of you ever fished? I didn't say successfully fished. I said, you know, throw a line in the water and watch it. I don't know if anything ever hits it, but you watch it. Well, one of the first things you learn when you catch fish is it's real helpful to use bait that the fish like. Just a thought. If you want to catch fish, you need to use bait or lures that they like. And scriptures here says we're captured and enticed by our own lust, by our own desires, our individual desires. Our old nature, you know, is attracted to sin. Our old nature is going to be attracted to sin until we die. And each one of us has areas of life where we are susceptible to specific sins. By the way, your adversary, Satan, knows exactly what those areas are. If you like chocolate, he'll arrange for you to have chocolate. 
all the time. If you're attracted to XYZ, sex, money, rock and roll, whatever it happens to be, he will arrange for a steady stream of that temptation to come because he's been studying you from the time you were born. He has a dossier on you and he knows you better than you know you because his mission is to lure you away from Christ and tempt you so he can capture you and destroy you. He wants to hook us, reel us in, and throw us in the frying pan. And Paul says, in light of the fact that you have an adversary, in light of the fact you have an enemy, in light of the fact that your old nature is going to be attracted to this stuff, walk carefully. Pay attention to where your feet are going. We need wisdom to walk carefully, not like the world. The world is stumbling around in the dark, and they're tripping over themselves and tripping over sin. Wisdom is seeing life from God's perspective and acting accordingly. That's a pretty good definition of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing life from God's perspective and acting accordingly. And you want to know where that perspective comes from. God's Word and the Holy Spirit equips us to walk wisely as we move closer and closer to Jesus. 1 John 2.20 says, But you, you and I, have an anointing from the Holy One. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because there is no lie in the truth. What, what John is saying is you have the Holy Spirit. You have the truth. You have the power and the knowledge to walk wisely because the Holy Spirit of truth will lead you into all the truth. So we have been given God's wisdom, God's truth, God's power. Now we have to choose to use it. One of the ways we choose to use it, one of the ways we walk carefully, one of the ways we walk wisely is found in verse 16. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. Here's the principle. Living wisely requires discernment. Since time is limited and the world is wicked, we must use earthly opportunities for eternal purposes. Living wisely requires discernment. Since time is limited and the world is wicked, we must use earthly opportunities for eternal purposes. Now he says making the most of the time. The, the, the Greek there is the word redeem. Your, your translation might say redeeming the time. And redeem is a word very, very common in that culture. It meant to buy back. It literally meant to purchase a slave in order to set them free. The purpose of redemption was to buy back from slavery in order to set free. And we're called to redeem, to purchase, to buy back, not a person. We're called to redeem, to purchase, and buy back time. Because time is in bondage. Now, there are two kinds of time in the Bible. One is chronos time, where we get chronometer. It's clock time. Seconds, minutes, days, weeks, months, years, decades, century. That's clock time. That's quantity of time. The second kind of time that he's talking about here, the Greek word is kairos, and it's quality of time. And this is a measured allotment of time that's designed for a specific purpose. It's like springtime, summertime, wintertime. So what you do in the springtime is plant. The purpose of springtime is to plant, right? And the purpose of time in the fall is to harvest. So it's time that's set aside for a specific purpose. So we've been commanded, buy back the time 
redeem the time, deliver the time that we have been given in this life from loss, and we redeem the time when we use earthly time for eternal opportunities. When we use earthly time for eternal opportunities. That's the purpose we've been given time. Making the most of our time means saying no to most things. Isn't that correct? It means saying no to what's attractive from an earth standpoint so you can say yes to what's important from heaven's point of view. Have you ever thought when you get to heaven there's going to be an enormous amount of things that we said yes to in this life that we're probably going to regret? It is phenomenally easy to waste time. Phenomenally easy to waste time. 69% of 12-year-olds in the U.S. have their own smartphone. Say no big deal. The average 8 to 12-year-old, we call those tweeners. The average tweener in America spends 4 hours and 44 minutes per day viewing online video content. Not schoolwork, that's in addition to. It's almost 5 hours a day watching online video content. <laughs> the average teenager, yeah, I know, some of you are doing the same thing. Yeah, I know, my friend Steve. The average teenager spends seven hours and 22 minutes a day of screen time, not including homework or school time. I don't think they spend seven hours and 22 minutes doing homework every day. Just a thought. Now, lest we become too inflated, the average adult spends almost 50 hours a week of screen time outside the workplace. We're probably not aware of how often we're looking at this thing. Most Americans, and especially most young people, would get depressed if they didn't have it. And most adults would too. If you took their phone away for a week, they might look at the world in a rather different strategy. Now, I'm not saying the screen is good or bad. It is what it is. But we are commanded to master it and not be mastered by it. The point is, if you're spending seven hours a day doing something, that's a lot of time that you're trading. You're trading your time for something. And the big question is, what am I getting in exchange for the time I traded? Tomorrow, at this time, 24 hours will have gone by. And I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, what did I get in exchange for the time I traded? Every single day, we swap time. Every single day, you have an allotment of time. You have 1,440 minutes every 24 hours. God puts that in your time bank account and you get to use it any way you want. And when it's gone, it's gone. And the only thing you have left is what you exchange for it. So all of us are in the time trading business. We trade our time for something. Paul says, redeem the time. Make sure you trade it for that which is eternal and not just that which is temporal. We, most people trade it for trinkets on earth as opposed to treasures in heaven. The translation of the word time here is rather interesting. It really is the word opportunity. He says, make the most of your opportunity. Alan Carr, pastor from the South, writes about an ancient Greek statue that, that depicted a man with wings on his back, a large lock of hair on the front of his head, and no hair at all on the back of his head. And beneath the statue was the inscription, what is your name? My name is Opportunity. 
Why do you have wings on your feet? So I can fly away swiftly. Why do you have a great forelock? That men may seize me when I come. Why are you bald in the back of your head? Because when I am gone, no one can lay hold of me. The word, Latin word for opportunity is old port venis. And it literally means coming into a port, a harbor. It refers, this word opportunity refers to a favorable wind or a high tide. Now back in the day, you just didn't fire up your engine and go into port, right? You waited for the wind and the winds were fickle. Sometimes you would have a favorable wind that could blow you into port and a high tide. And sometimes you didn't have a wind or a high tide, in which case you could not get into port unless you had a favorable wind or a high tide. So the opportunity was that word for a favorable wind. And Paul says, our time on earth is limited and time is the opportunity. Time in this life is the favorable wind that God has provided. So if time is our opportunity, Paul says, don't waste it. Don't waste a favorable wind because when the wind dies down or there's low tide, you can't sail into port. When our lives are over, our opportunity to serve Jesus in this life is over, right? The hardest thing for us to remember is all opportunities are temporary. They're temporary. They're not guaranteed because our lives on earth are short. Our birth and death, of course, are the boundary markers of our time here on earth, and none of us know how long that will be. Psalm 39.4. This is a prayer of a wise person. O Lord, make me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as hand breadths. This is a hand breadth and my lifetime has nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Now we know that up here. Intellectually, every single one of us go, yep, I know, there's a limit to my days. The challenge is we don't usually live that way. Because we got yesterday, we assume we'll have tomorrow. So we live today just like we've always lived. This is an excellent prayer. It says, Lord, I need divine perspective on how short my days are so that I can use them wisely. See, we were created to physically live forever. We were designed for eternity. But Adam and Eve's sin separated us from God. And of course, death entered the world as a result of that. Psalm 90 is the Psalm of Moses. It's probably the oldest Psalm written written by Moses when they were spending 40 years in the wilderness squeezing sand through their toes in the Sinai Peninsula. Now you talk about boring, 40 years in the desert, going probably back and forth and eating manna every single day, right? I mean, this was a rather monotonous life. And Moses was in the business of doing funerals because God had said, Every single Israelite, 20 years old and up, is going to die in the next 40 years. You're not getting into the land for 40 years, and everybody 20 years older and upward is going to die. So if you were over 20 years old and you were an Israelite, you knew my life maximum is 40 years, and I'm going to be out of here. 
I didn't even know, somebody calculated at one point in time, if you had two million Israelites, 600,000 men over 20, that's a lot of funerals in 40 years. Moses was in the business of burying a lot of people. So he was around death a lot. And he says in Psalm 90, verse 11, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for it is soon gone and we fly away. So therefore, teach us to count our days, number our days, so that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. You know, it's interesting. When we sit down and really count our days, we're really impressed or, or in our case, maybe depressed by how many have already gone by, Right? And, and how many are likely few left? You know, 20 years, doesn't 20 years sound like a long time? It's about 1,040 weekends. It's about 7,300 days. If you've got a brand new newborn child or grandchild, 18 years from now is only 216 months before they graduate from high school and hopefully get off your payroll. But if you think they're getting off your payroll at 18... You, you're probably dreaming. They're probably still going to be on the payroll. See, some of us don't have a lot of time left to present to God a heart of wisdom. I mean, that's the whole goal. Moses said, teach us the number of days so that we can present to you a heart of wisdom. Wouldn't it be tragic to live 80 years and still be a fool when you stand before God? That would be pretty tragic. See, Proverbs tells us, look, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Of course, we know knowing Christ is the fullness of wisdom. So I'm going to recommend something to you that's going to be very counterintuitive and that our world rejects because they're terrified of it. I'm going to recommend on a regular basis, you put some serious time into thinking about your death. And what God wants you to be busy doing between now and then. So that when he calls you home, you won't say, I got all this stuff left to do. You want to say like Jesus, I finished the work you gave me to do. That's what you want to say in your deathbed. I finished the work you gave me to do. Not, I wasted so much time and I have regrets. Spend some time on a regular basis contemplating your death and what Jesus has for you to do between now and then. That way you won't waste time. You'll make the most of every opportunity. Paul says, do that because the days are evil. Now, of course, when Paul wrote this, Nero was the emperor, the emperor of Rome. And there was a lot of persecution going on. Christians were beginning to uh, be persecuted. And of course, we live in an environment where sin abounds and, and the world system, of course, is under the control of Satan, which is at war with God and God's people. In light of our short lifespan and in light of the world, the dying world, we should use our time as wisely as we can, given the limited amount of resource we have. You know, we don't have to wonder what we're supposed to be doing with our time. Jesus has made it pretty clear, hasn't he? Our mission is to what? Make disciples. Our mission is to make disciples. Each one of us individually, and in fact, the entire universe has a shelf life, a predetermined expiration date. There's an expiration date on me. You can't see it on my forehead, but it's there. There's a day when I'm leaving here. And there's a day when the universe is going to end as well. First Peter tells us that God has a calendar date when he's going to destroy the whole sinful universe and create the new heavens and the new earth where there's going to be no sin. 
And in light of that brevity of life, Paul says, verse 17, don't be, Brad's translation, don't be stupid. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. In light of the brevity of life, in light of the evil world we live in, in light of the time frame, don't be foolish. Here's the principle. Living wisely requires definition. We must understand and do God's will, which is found in God's word. Living wisely requires definition. We must understand and do God's will, which is found in God's word. See, the theme throughout all this is live wisely, live carefully in light of the environment you happen to be in. You know, in the book of Proverbs, the naive person is always presented as the ignorant one, the one who does not know the truth. <coughs> that does not know reality. The fool or the unwise person in Proverbs is the one who knows the truth and chooses to live in opposition to the truth even though they know it. Now that would not be considered too bright, correct? I mean, if you know the truth and you don't live in light of it, that person is called a fool. It's a person who thinks they're wise, but scripture says they know nothing. Paul says, don't be a fool. Don't live unwisely by refusing to obey God's will. Living your life in contrary, in opposition to spiritual truth is not wise. The wise person seeks to understand God's will so they can do it and be blessed by it. And Paul says, the will of God is knowable. The will of God is definite. The will of God is precise. The will of God is not vague. It's not unknowable. You don't find God's will in a mystical state of altered consciousness or whatever. God's will is very definite, very distinct, very doable, very knowable. And the will of God is found in the word of God. If you want to know what the will of God is, he's written it down. You've got it in black and white, in your lap or on your smart device. See, the Bible tells us everything we need to know in order to be wise and to have a relationship with God for all eternity. All we have to do is know and then do. If you wonder what you should be doing with your time here on earth, what's the first commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's very clear. The first commandment is very simple. Love God with everything you are. That's the will of God for your life. Number two, what's the second commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So loving God and loving people is the summary of God's will for our life. We don't have to wonder, okay, Lord, time is short. I know I've got a D-Day. I'm leaving here at some point. What should I be doing with my time? How should I live wisely? Well, if you're not in the business of loving God and loving people, we got a pretty good idea you're not fulfilling the will of God because the Lord's made that very clear. Now, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he commissioned us, his followers, and gave them their marching orders. And God says, you will love me and you will love people by representing me on planet earth and making disciples. You will be my representatives. You will be my ambassadors. That's how you will demonstrate your love for me and your love for people. 2 Corinthians 5.18. 
Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, you and I, the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the ministry, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, we dare not forget in this thing called life who we are, whose we are, and why we're here. God has called us to represent him. You bear his name, right? You say, I am a Christian. You are his ambassador to a lost world because God offers reconciliation to the world by forgiving sins through Christ's death on the cross. And our mission is to represent him by proclaiming that. God has an offer of peace, a ceasefire, a peace offer of forgiveness to restore humanity's broken relationship. That's what reconciliation is. It means we restore a broken relationship. And we're ambassadors of the king of glory. Now we're citizens of heaven, but our mission field is here, correct? Our mission field's on earth. Satan wants us to believe that this mission field we're in is really not a mission field, it's really a home. Our home is here. Just newsflash, our home is not here. Our workplace is here. This is not our playground, it's our battlefield. It's not a rec center, it's, it's where we're actually engaged in spiritual warfare because people are dying every day without Christ. And it's our calling to tell them how they can get to heaven. And that is a great privilege and it's by far the only eternal use of your time or my time. You know, it's very easy to wonder, well, I've been saved. Why would God not just take me to heaven right now and get me out of this cesspool? Because he has a job description for you to do. As his ambassador to proclaim his offer of peace and reconciliation to people. And people are dying every day. Every day. How many of you remember seeing the movie MASH? You know what that stands for? Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. And it was right behind the front lines. If you remember the show, for whatever reason, for better or worse, there was a lot of times they're doing operating and they're trying to save people's lives and there's incoming. I mean, it's in a war zone. That's what the church is in one sense. We're a mash unit in a war zone. And there are people that come in here and they are spiritually bleeding. And it's our privilege to bring them here and to love them when they come. You know, we're never gonna be able to understand or do God's will in our own wisdom and in our own strength. So Paul is going to tell us how it's possible to redeem the time, how it's possible to live wisely, how it's possible to make, to trade the temporal time for eternal opportunity. He's gonna tell us how to do that in verse 18 through 20. He says, and do not, Get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, 
singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Here's the principle. Living wisely requires the Holy Spirit. We are controlled by whatever fills us. And as we continually surrender our lives to him, he fills us with joy and thanksgiving. Living wisely requires the Holy Spirit, not optional. We are controlled by whatever fills us, and as we continually surrender our lives to him, he fills us with joy and thanksgiving. So Paul starts this off with a negative command. He says, don't get drunk with wine. In other words, don't be controlled by wine. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit because we are controlled by whatever fills us. The Bible doesn't forbid alcohol use, by the way. There's nothing in Scripture that says it's a sin to drink. It warns of the dangers of alcohol, and Bible always condemns drunkenness. Always. There's nothing in Scripture that condones drunkenness. We, when, when someone's intoxicated, the polite way to say is they are under the influence, right? Under the influence of, in this case, drug alcohol. A vernacular expression, we say uh, they're wasted, right? Wasted is another word for dissipation. Paul uses that word dissipation. It literally means to squander, to, to scatter, to, to degrade, to, to throw away. You know, the prodigal son, remember the prodigal son? Took his daddy's inheritance and he went to a foreign country and it said he squandered it. He just threw it around. He, he dispersed it. He took a very concentrated source of wealth and wasted it. And an intoxicated person is one whose brain cells are disorganized, would you say? And scattered. The synapses are not always firing there at that point. Now, the truth is, every single one of us are always under the influence of someone or something. Always ask the question, who's got me influenced? And if you don't think nothing has you influenced, that's a sign of delusion. We are all influenced. And someone who spends four hours a day on a smart device, let me tell you, you are being influenced. Your decisions about how you interact with that web are tracked and algorithms are designed to capture your attention and try and capture your wallet. And you know that. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying don't be foolish. Be wise. Pay attention in the world you're in. So we're always under the influence. Some people are influenced by their desire for prosperity, position, prestige, money, sex, power, fame, fortune, whatever, but we're all influenced. The question is, who's doing the influence? Some people are under the control of their children. None of us here. Our grandchildren? Sure. Yeah. No problem. We're proud to be under the influence of our grandchildren, right? See, the Holy Spirit is to be the only source of control in the life of the believer. We are to be influenced and controlled, but only by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now that's a passive command. We don't fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. We are being filled with the Holy Spirit as we daily surrender our lives to him. 
So to be filled with the Holy Spirit means to submit every area of our life, every area of our life to the direction and control of the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means to trust and obey the Holy Spirit in accordance as God's words direct us. This is not a command for empty Christians to go to God like they do a gas station and fill up an empty car with gas. I'm empty of the Holy Spirit. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has already taken up residence in your life. You have the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation and you're never gonna lose him. So be filled doesn't mean you already have him. It is a voluntary act of ongoing daily surrender to him. Romans 8, 9 tells us everyone who belongs to Christ already has the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So every Christian at the moment of salvation receives the Holy Spirit or is baptized with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not the same as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Warren Wiersbe writes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit means that I belong to Christ's body. The filling of the Spirit means that my body belongs to Christ. There is a difference. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we're all made to drink of one Spirit. So at the moment of salvation, the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs one time when you're saved and the Holy Spirit places us into the body of Christ. He says, you are now a member of Christ's body. That occurred when you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and repented of your sins. You received the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit moved you into the body of Christ, the family of God. You are now part of his family. You never need to ask for more of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has all of God all the time. God never holds out on you. You don't have to beg him for more of him. He all, you already have all of him. Our problem is he doesn't have all of us. That's the problem. We are usually filled with things other than God. You know, one of Satan's most effective strategies to keep the Holy Spirit from filling our lives is busyness. It's running after the good things, but not having time for the best things. I can so identify with Martha. Remember Mary and Martha? Jesus is gonna come out at their place, have a meal with them, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. They're probably his closest earthly friends. And he loved to come and sit and relax and they would make a meal. And Martha's in the kitchen and she's cooking and she's doing the dinner and she's doing the prep and she's setting the table and she's got the china and the silver. I mean, she's doing the whole deal. This is Jesus. Come on, we're going to do a big dinner. And Mary is sitting on the living room floor and just having a conversation with Jesus. And Martha goes, Jesus, tell my lazy sister to get off her blessed assurance and help me in the kitchen. I'm sweating and she's sitting down at your feet. This is not fair. And what does Jesus say? He says, she has chosen the best thing. Fellowship with me is the best thing. You don't need to do a seven course meal. A bowl of soup's fine. 
right? Don't get distracted with the good when it costs you the best. And Satan is wonderful at getting us busy chasing around doing all these wonderful things and good things and the things of the Lord in our own strength. We want to do the work of God in our own strength and that is a recipe for failure. And the most important thing it does, it keeps us from intimacy with Jesus. It keeps us from being filled with the Spirit because we are filled with ourselves. So he says, be filled with the Spirit. That means a constant, continually being filled. It means a constant daily yielding and surrendering moment by moment to the Holy Spirit's control. John MacArthur tells us that the word for filled, the Greek word is pleru, and the word has three connotations when it says be filled. The first connotation is the word pressure. It, it, think of a sailing boat sailing through a harbor and the wind comes behind the sail and pressures the sail, yes, to move the boat forward. So the Holy Spirit is like the wind that pressures the sail. It's like throwing a stick into a creek and you watch the creek move the stick down the creek, right, as the, the stick just floats. The power of the creek carries that stick down to a destination. That's the spirit. It's pressure, pressure, wind to fill the sail and to move that stick down the creek. So the believer allows the power of the Holy Spirit to carry them forward in the direction the Holy Spirit wants to go, which may not be the direction we want to go, right? That's where surrender comes in. The second word, the second connotation of, of, of this word, be filled, is permeation. How many of you have ever eaten more than you should have eaten? Yeah, and then you take Alka-Seltzer and you drop it into the water and it goes plop, plop, fizz, fizz. This is decades old, right? We can relate to this. And within a few moments, that entire glass of water is permeated with bubbles and Alka-Seltzer, right? Because it dissolves. So the water is permeated. And in the same way, our lives are to be permeated with the Holy Spirit. Every cell in our body, all the veins, everything in our body should be permeated with the Holy Spirit in the same way that Alka-Seltzer is. So when we say the Holy Spirit fills us, we should be infused with the savor of the Holy Spirit. And the third connotation for filled other than pressure, like a wind, permeation, like Alka-Seltzer, is that of control or domination. When a container is filled to the brim with something, there's no room for anything else. You know, some people have a schedule that is so full there's no time for God. How many of you, this is really going to require courage, how many of you in your home have a junk room? Yeah, I was going to keep it simple. A junk room, several, okay. My whole house is the junk room, Brad. You're not getting it, right? Now, in that junk room, things are probably not terribly organized, but there's probably a lot of stuff, right? And that room that's filled with stuff is a picture of some people's hearts. Are unwilling to make room for the Holy Spirit because they like their schedule. They like their priorities. They like their stuff and they want that more than they want a deeper relationship with Jesus. See, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it means we're pressured, permeated, and controlled. There's no room for anything else to control us. The reason Satan is scared of you when you are filled with the Holy Spirit is 1 John 4, 4 says, greater is he who is in you 
than he who is in the world. And God commands us to continually live every day of our lives permeated and pressured and filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. What Satan wants to do is to have us do the work of God in our own strength. Be filled with yourself, your agenda, your plan, your goal, your mission, and that's designed to fail. And then you live under his power. When you're full of the Holy Spirit, we overcome Satan's realm. It, it, it's, it's like a glove. I keep lots of gloves around the house, right? Work gloves, driving gloves, etc., etc. Suppose I want this glove to learn to play the piano. I can put the glove on the piano. I can put it on the bench. I can lecture this glove about how it should learn how to play the piano. I can take this glove to the piano teacher and put it on the piano and say, you know, I'm signing this glove up for piano lessons. It's got to learn how to play piano. I can take it to concerts so it's, it, it sees the masters at work and say, this glove, you should be learning how to do that. But my gloves will never play the piano, right? by themselves. But when I put my hand inside the glove, then the glove does whatever the hand does. Yes? That's because it's my hand that's really doing the work, not the glove. The glove may be a little awkward compared to the hand alone, but it's okay. I want the glove to learn to play the piano. You and I are gloves. Amen. The Holy Spirit is the hand. Expecting to do the work of God without the Holy Spirit is expecting a glove to play a concert without the hand. It's impossible. Jesus gave us a little different illustration about the vine and the branches. He says, you're like a grapevine. I'm the vine, I'm the roots, I'm the vine. You're the branch. If you stay connected to me, you're going to bear fruit. If you're cut off from me, you're going to dry up and wither and you'll bear no fruit. We cannot live the Christian life on our own. It is impossible. That's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, if you fill me with, you fill you with me, and you let me control your life, you'll bear much fruit. And one of the ways to be filled and controlled is to let the Holy Spirit teach us the word of God, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. See, the word-filled Christian is the spirit-filled Christian because the Holy Spirit hungers your heart after the word. So I'm going to encourage all of us, spend time in the word of God. Spend time in the word of God. And the last thing Paul talks about, he says, I'm going to give you some results. What does the life of a Christian who is filled with the Spirit look like? Of course, I'm, the first time I read this, I thought, well, wouldn't, that, wouldn't he be talking about power and evangelism and miracles? And he's talking about music. Fascinating. All four of the results of being filled with the Spirit deal with praise. He says, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making a melody in your heart to the Lord. So when we're filled with the Spirit, the first thing we do is we encourage each other because that's what the Spirit does. We're family. Psalms are typically Old Testament psalms that Christians and Jews sang at their worship service. A psalm is really any sacred song of praise, usually sung with a musical accompaniment. 
hymns uh, translates really any, any song or musical uh, praise that, that highlights God's character, God's conduct, God's power, but it usually focuses on praise. Spiritual songs are vocal praise music of various kinds. Singing is verbal and vocal. Making melody in your heart is usually silent, inaudible. But one of the things that's very, very common, no one sings unless they're filled because out of the mouth comes from what's in the heart. If you are praising the Lord with music, it's because your heart is filled with him. And if there is no praise on the lips, it reflects what's in or not in the heart. A spirit-filled life is a life that habitually praises God. This has me so convicted. It says, always giving thanks for all things. Now, I didn't need to hear that. Very convicting. Always giving thanks for all things. There's a whole lot of things that happened to Brad this week that I didn't give God thanks for. And probably you too. If we're filled with the Spirit, that command covers everything because a Spirit-filled life is a life that habitually thanks God. A Spirit-filled life is not a life that's filled with grumbling and complaining, but with gratitude. Here's why that works. How many of you had circumstances this week you'd just as soon skip? How many of you can have circumstances the next week you'd just as soon skip? Yep, probably a lot of us. Since God causes all things to work together for good. Yes, Romans 8, 28 and 29. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, then there is nothing that happens in our life that we cannot praise God for the results of because whatever it is, he allowed it to happen and he will cause it to work for our ultimate good. Yes? Now, that doesn't mean you thank God for a diagnosis of cancer. But it means you do praise God for what he is going to do as a result of that. I'm not saying you praise God as a result of sin and death and sickness. But you do praise God that he is Lord of those things. And he will cause all those things to work together for our ultimate good. See, the object of our thanksgiving is always God. Because we give thanks not primarily for what we receive but for the who that is the source of everything, correct? Which is God himself. Gratitude to God always is a result of being filled with the Spirit. And we cannot live wisely, we cannot live carefully, we cannot live prudently in a sinful, fallen, broken world unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some magical second experience where you beg God for the ability to speak in tongues, etc., etc. It simply says, I am surrendering everything in my life to Jesus every day and asking him to fill me with him and cleanse me from everything that is not him. Correct? I do this multiple times a day because I'm filled with stuff that are not the Holy Spirit. And unless we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we do not have the ability to do the things God wants us to do unless he fills us like a hand in a glove. Okay, let's summarize. Number one, living wisely requires diligence 
We must walk carefully so we don't stumble over temptation and fall into sin. This is not a playground. This is a battleground. Number two, living wisely requires discernment. Since time is limited and the world is wicked, we must use earthly opportunities for eternal purposes. And guess what? Every day, God gives us dozens and dozens and dozens of earthly opportunities that he wants to use for eternal purposes. And one of the best ways to do it is tell people about Jesus. They need to go to heaven. That's eternity. Number three, living wisely requires definition. We must understand and do God's will, which is found in God's word. And it is a definite, distinct, knowable, and doable will of God. Love God, love people. Number four, living wisely requires the Holy Spirit. We are controlled by whatever fills us. And by the way, if you want to know what fills you, let somebody bump into you and see what spills out. That will tell us what was in us, right? We are controlled by the order of us, and as we continually surrender our lives to him, he, the Holy Spirit, fills us with joy and thanksgiving. Now next week, we're gonna, next couple of weeks, we're gonna take up a topic that many of us are gonna struggle with because one of the things the Holy Spirit does in our lives, he teaches us to submit to each other in all circumstances. Be here next week. I love you. Now that you know, do. You've been listening to the Man of Bible Lessons podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Man of Bible Lessons on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. For more information about the podcast and class, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for joining us, and now that you know, do.